Wendell Smith spent his life pretty much filled with that same feeling. Up in the sky. <laughs> Is it a bird? Is it a plane? You know, and that's how every single episode started. When I was your age, I lost my dad and my brother in the same year. We it's time for the Apple Seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers since 2013. We've been bringing you tall tales and personal tales and fairy tales and historical tales and more. And today's episode features a true story from Kate Dudding, conversation with Stuart Foster about the podcast The Thrilling Adventure Hour, a little radio drama from our producer Jeff Simpson, as well as a fairy tale from Ed Stivender. It's an hour full of tales that we hope will spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. And we're going to begin with a story recorded live at the International Storytelling Center in Jonesboro, Tennessee. It's a story that you're probably familiar with. You've heard of Hansel and Gretel, right? Well, you probably never heard it told quite like it is here by Ed Stivender. Ed takes this tried and true tale of a brother and sister lost in the woods and adds his own musical flair. And you're going to hear an enthusiastic audience sing along as Ed provides the musical accompaniment on his banjo. Wherever you're listening to this story, we encourage you to sing along to it. It's from a collection of stories called Classics Revisited. Ed Stivender with Hansel and Gretel here on The Appleseed. Here's one. Hansel and Gretel were brother and sister, and they loved each other very much. They loved each other very much. They lived by the side of a deep, dark forest, and of all of the neighbors, they were the poorest. They loved each other very much. They loved each other very much. Now, their father was a woodcutter, but the government said that they couldn't cut any more trees, and so he fell into hard times. They didn't have enough to eat, very little money, and Hansel and Gretel were often hungry often went to bed hungry. Well, one day, their father brought home a new person, a stepmother for the children. Now, sometimes a stepmother is the best thing that could happen to a family, but sometimes it doesn't work out quite that way. Well, that's what happened in the story of Hansel and Gretel, because their stepmother hated them. She was always complaining about they didn't clean behind their ears and they didn't clean their nails and they didn't help with the cooking and they didn't help with the cleaning and they didn't do their homework. They weren't good children at all. She didn't like them. At all. But Hansel and Gretel were brother and sister and they loved each other very much. They loved each other very much. One evening, after their meager dinner, they were asleep, or trying to get to sleep, in their beds upstairs when they heard, These children eat too much. We ought to get them out of here. These children eat too much. We're going to take them to the woods and leave them there where the wolves and the bears will take care of them. We can't take care of them here, husband. They eat too much. We're going to get them out of here tomorrow. We'll take them for a little walk into the woods and leave them there. Upstairs, Hansel and Gretel were listening to this, and Gretel said to Hansel, Hansel, are you afraid? And Hansel said, Well... 
You pretend that you're not afraid, and I'll pretend that I'm not afraid. We can pretend that we're not afraid together. You pretend that you're not afraid, I'll pretend that I'm not afraid. We can pretend that we're not afraid together in any kind of weather. And you know, when you're not afraid, you can think more clearly than when you are afraid. And Hansel said, I got an idea. Tomorrow, when we go into the woods, we'll take pieces of bread and drop them along the path as we walk into the woods so that tomorrow night, when the moon comes out shining bright, we can follow the pieces of bread back home. What do you think? Oh, Hansel, I'm so glad you're my brother. Oh, Gretel, I'm so glad you're my sister. Well, you can see that Hansel and Gretel were brother and sister, and they loved each other very much. They loved each other very much. They lived by the side of a deep, dark forest. Of all of the neighbors, they were the poorest. Loved each other very much. Children, time to get up. We're going for a walk in the woods. A long, long walk. Here's a loaf of bread for each of you. Don't eat it all at once. We're going to be outside of the house for a long time. A long, long time. So into the woods they went. And every couple of yards, Hansel and Gretel would drop a piece of bread on the way so that that night when the moon came shining bright they could follow the piece of bread back home they got to the middle of the forest just as it began to get dark and their stepmother said all right children sit underneath this tree your father and i are going further into the woods and we'll be back for you later much later and so hansel and gretel were alone hansel are you afraid If you pretend that you're not afraid, I can't pretend that we're not afraid. We can pretend that we're not afraid together. They looked up, and there they saw two big yellow eyes staring down at them. Who are you? I'm Hansel. This is my sister Gretel. Who are you? I'm Mr. Owl. I know everything. Oh, Mr. Owl, can you tell us? When the moon is going to come out and shining bright in the sky. Oh, children, if you want the moon, you're going to have to call for Mr. Woof. Oh, no, we don't really need to hear from Mr. Woof. Mr. Woof. And then crashing and thrashing and bashing through the forest came the greatest gray wolf they'd ever seen. He came over to the children, looked them in the eye and said, Well, children... What is it that you want? Oh, Mr. Wolf, we're really sorry to bother you, but uh, I'm wondering, uh, uh, can you bring the moon out? Um, Is that too much to ask for, the moon? No, not too much to ask for from two children like you. And so the great gray wolf sat back on his great gray haunches lifted his great gray head into the sky and said, You guys ready?
more time. And there, sure enough, in the sky was the bright moon. Thanks, Mr. Wolf, said Otzel. Thanks, Mr. Wolf, said Gretel. And they started following the pieces of bread back home. I told you, you pretend that you're not afraid. I'll pretend I'm not afraid. We can pretend that we're not afraid together. I'm so glad you're my brother, Hansel. I'm so glad you're my sister. And they started running down that path. Hansel and Gretel were brother and sister, and they loved each other very much. All of a sudden, they heard up ahead, tweet, 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 tweet. Tweet, 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 tweet. Tweet, 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 tweet. What a treat, what a treat. Sweet bread to eat. Tweet, 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 tweet. We're having a party. Tweet, 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 sweet bread to eat. We're having a party. Oh no, birds! You've eaten all our bread. Now we'll never find our way back home. Sorry. Tweet, tweet. Thanks for the party. Tweet, tweet. Thanks for the party. Tweet, tweet. Now Hansel and Gretel were alone. No more moon. No more bread. Gretel, are you afraid? Yeah. If you pretend that you're not afraid, then I'll pretend I'm not afraid, and we can't pretend we're not afraid together. And step by step, through that darkened forest, they went until they came to another clearing. And in the middle of that clearing was a great house made entirely of gingerbread. Out front, there were lemonade fountains, And potato chip leaves on all the trees. The door was a large chocolate bar. They ran up to the house and started taking pieces of the gingerbread and eating it. Mm, If you pretend you're not afraid, I'll pretend I'm not afraid. We can pretend that we're not afraid together. Nibble, nibble like a mouse. Who's that nibbling on my house? Nibble, nibble like a mouse. Who's that nibbling on my house? And the door opened, and out stepped the witch, with a nose as long as a poker, and large, squinty eyes. Oh, what have we here? Who are you? My name's Hans. This is my sister Gretel. We really didn't know this was your house, and I'm sorry that we started eating it. Oh, two little children. Oh, how sweet. Two little children, sweet enough to eat. Come in, children, come in. You must have some good food. And they sat down at the table, and they ate some good food. Sausages and potatoes and milk and spinach. They knew it was healthy food. Hansel and Gretel, when they were finished their dinner, were pretty tired. And so the witch said, Oh, go upstairs and sleep in Granny's feather bed. I'll wake you in the morning. And so the children did. And when they were gone, Two little children, oh, how sweet. Two little children, sweet enough to eat. I'll fatten them up and then I'll sup on two little children, sweet enough to eat. She went in back of the house and brought in a cage big enough for a deer, put it in the middle of the kitchen, and then in the morning, Children, come downstairs. As the children came downstairs, the witch said, Hansel, I want to test this cage to see if it's strong enough for a deer. Uh, Won't you just step into it, dear? (laughs) And Hansel stepped into the cage. As soon as he was inside, the witch 
closed the door and cast a spell on it. Gretel, run away, run away. Gretel ran to the door and then she turned around and said, you know what she said. You pretend that you're not afraid and I'll pretend that I'm not afraid and we can pretend that we're not afraid together in any kind of weather. Oh, very good choice, Gretel. So you can stay and help me clean the house and do the cooking and do the washing and serve good food to your brother. We're going to make him fat and then we'll have a feast in his honor. And so they stayed and every day Gretel did the cooking and Hansel got fatter and fatter and fatter. But every day when the witch came to the door of the cage... Stick out your finger, Hansel. He would stick out a chicken bone. The witch would feel the chicken bone and say, Not yet! Not yet! Until finally, she couldn't wait any longer and said, Today's the day! Gretel, we're going to have a feast with your brother. Start the fire in the oven, dear. Oh, I, uh, I forget how to start the fire in the oven. Oh, you impudent little child. Go like this. She brought her over to the oven, holding her by the ear. And then the witch took a match, lit the match, leaned into the oven. And as she leaned in, Gretel pushed her into the oven and the witch was no more. Up in a puff of smoke went she. All of her spells were broken and the door of the deer cage burst open. The flue burst open, and out of the flue above the stove came gold, diamonds, jewels, rubies, and Hansel and Gretel began to stuff their pockets with the gold and the diamonds and the rubies. And down the road they went, Gretel running, Hansel waddling as fast as they could. All of a sudden, they were joined by a friend. Well, children... You got the moon, didn't you? Oh, yes, Mr. Wolf. We got much better than that. We've got jewels and diamonds, and we just escaped from a witch. Come on, Hansel. Would you like a ride, said the wolf. Oh, yes, said Hansel. I would really like a ride. Hansel jumped on the wolf. Gretel jumped on the wolf, and they ran. The wolf... They sat, and the wolf ran. All the way to the river at the edge of the forest, and there on the other side of the river they saw their father... Hansel, Gretel, Father, we're here. A swan came to their side of the river. They got on the back of the swan, and the swan took them over to the other side, and they jumped into their father's arms and said, Father, look, we've got gold and diamonds and rubies. We'll never be poor again. Where's stepmother? Children, your stepmother is gone forever, I'm afraid. Oh, too bad. Father, we've got adventures we'd like to tell you about. We pretend that we're not afraid, and then you can pretend that you're not afraid, and all of us can pretend that we're not afraid together. And they did. They didn't have to be afraid now that they had some things, some gold. And they lived there without a stepmother. Hansel and Gretel... We're brother and sister. They loved each other very much. They loved each other very much. They lived by the side of a deep, dark forest. And all of other neighbors, they used to be the poorest. But they loved each other. Loved each other very much. Now, you know, 
Some stories end in tears, some stories end in laughter. The ones that I like best are the ones that end happily ever after. Ed's Divender with his rendition of Hansel and Gretel. Ed's been called the Robin Williams of storytelling, and it isn't all that hard to see why. What a pleasure it was to bring that tale to you. We're going to take a quick break, but then we'll be back with more stories for your listening pleasure, including a true tale from Kate Dudding about one of the most influential baseball players that ever lived. You won't want to miss a single word. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard a musical rendition of the classic fairy tale Hansel and Gretel from Ed Stivender. Later on in the hour, you're going to hear a true story from Kate Dudding about a baseball player who made a big difference on and off the field. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Stories come into our lives in so many ways. From families passing them along, telling to telling, from the pages of great books, through terrific songs, the things we see on screen, and of course, from radio and podcasts. We're so glad that you're with us here on The Appleseed, whether you're listening at BYURadio.org or whether you've found us wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And I'm joined today by Stuart Foster, one of our assistant producers. And Stuart is, listen, it's not too bold to call him a podcast maniac. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> whenever Stuart, I whenever I media. cook, Sam, whenever yeah. I'm cooking with my wife, we are listening to a podcast. It's like <laughs> school just never leaves us. We are always educated at home. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find podcasts on just about any topic. It's just incredible. That's true. Know? It's kind of a revolutionary age of podcasting yeah. right now where you can find, well, just about anything from drama to, like, like I said, educational sure. stuff to educational journalism. Yep. And podcasts are sometimes created in professional studios and you know but other times podcasts are created in living rooms or closets yeah by like a single person somewhere out in the world entry is not high Uh, just about anybody can make a podcast Mm -hmm. and find and grow an audience yeah you've brought us some really interesting podcasts to listen to and we've got one today to talk about we do yeah so this podcast is called the thrilling adventure hour and their kind of byline for the show is a stage show and podcast in the style of old-time radio. Oh, yeah, exactly. I love it already. I know. It's very, <laughs> very fun. When you listen into the podcast, it's it's kind of like you get a little bit of sound distortion. It sounds like it's coming out of a old-timey, like, wooden box radio, wow. right? Um, and are these original stories that you hear? Yeah, they are. So they're they're mostly dramas. They have a whole collection of dramas yeah. um, that they put together on this show, ranging from like children's dramas yeah. to adult dramas. The ones that I was going to suggest today, mm-hmm. there are three of them. One of them is called Amelia Earhart. One of them is called The Adventures of Captain Laserbeam. And one of them <laughs> is called Sparks, Nevada, Marshall on Mars. They're mostly kids' dramas. They're yeah. really, really excellent kind of depictions of what a drama in the 30s to the 60s was like, right? Uh It's got a big 
radio time announcer at the beginning of it, you know, giving you the update of what has happened on the previous episode. And then they go in and do things like make references to the Superman of, you know, the 30s, right? Or or things like that. That's that's kind of what the adventures of Captain Laserbeam are, right? It's like a little bit of a Superman mashup, you know, that, that kind of gives you a little bit more modern Superman, but also a little bit more of a kid's Superman. Sure. It's very, very fun. You'd, you'd really, really like it. Yeah. I already love it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this is what got me to look at the massive catalog of radio drama that exists from that time period. Yeah. It's really what caused me to really get into how that golden age of radio, yeah. you know, kind of came to be. And, you know, I referenced Superman, you know, be, just simply because, like, I've listened to the original Supermans. And, yeah. like, this this reminds me of those. It reminds me of hearing that announcer say, like, up in the sky. Yeah. Is it a bird? <laughs> Is it a plane? You know, and that's how every single episode started. I feel like podcasts can do that yeah. in our lives, right? Like, they can show us something that has happened before and call us back to that time and then yeah. almost take us back there. It's such an interesting time these days because there is this resurging interest in telling stories on the radio in ways that people have been doing for a long time. Yeah. You know? And then kind of went away for a while. And now, now again, there's this resurgence and in interest in buildings, using some of those same building blocks to tell stories in very modern ways, you know. This sounds like a direct throwback to some of those. Such a love letter to that time that it even employs a lot of those techniques. Very much so. works to sound like it's coming out of an old radio Mm -hmm. and and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, so it's a lot of fun in that way. It can kind of open your mind to something that has happened before. And like you said, it is an excellent resurgence of those great classics, things like, you know, War of the Worlds, sure, yeah. you know, the, those types of things that happen. So we heard you talk about Captain Laserbeam. You talked about, uh, is there a hero named Sparks Nevada? There is. <laughs> Sparks Nevada is a marshal. So this is kind of a Western. Yeah. And he is a marshal on, on Mars. Mars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He is, it's a Western, a space Western, oh, it's essentially. It's about time there was a hero named Sparks Nevada. I know. I, I, I never longed for that until I heard it. And then I thought, oh, that yes, absolutely. We yeah, it's sure. very, very funny and and a lot of these employ you know kind of comedic overtones that they're very very fun in that way that there's lots and lots of gaffes and jokes and things like that but also they're kind of self-contained so for instance the laser beam episodes each one is kind of its own episode whereas the sparks nevada episodes you get kind of a longer story that goes Mm. in between them right so you've got everything from episodic stuff to actual full-on storylines, the dramas that draw out over multiple episodes. Yeah. And as people get familiar with the podcast, is is it easy to tell? You're talking about a podcast in which there are episodes created for younger listeners mm-hmm. and episodes created for more mature listeners. And is it easy to tell going into it? Can you tell at a click whether you're in for one or the other? I guess where I'm going is if you're a parent trying to guide your kid through some of the experiences that mm-hmm. you're going to have, is it easy to do that without any surprises? Yep, it totally <laughs> is. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of what 
each episode is titled after the show that it is putting an episode into, oh, basically. Right, so, right. for instance, if you look for The Adventures of Captain Laserbeam, you'll see that as the title episode. It'll be The Adventures of Captain Laserbeam, episode five or whatever. Yeah. He saves Metrocity. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the Thrilling Adventure Hour. Mm-hmm. Well, it's always a pleasure to share a conversation with a friend about some of the ways that important stories come into our lives. And if the things we've talked about in today's conversation spark things for you that you can share with the people that you love, then we're doing it just about right. Pleasure to have you, Stuart. Thank you. Great to be here. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, and it's great to talk with Stuart about podcasts. And as promised, we're going to bring you that Kate Dudding story in just a minute. But first, we're going to take a quick break. Stick around. You won't want to miss it. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard a conversation with Stuart Foster about the podcast The Thrilling Adventure Hour. You know, we always say that it's our hope that the stories that we bring you on The Appleseed spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people you love. Memories like that can lead to fruitful conversation and more memories that can last a lifetime. And our next storyteller is all about sparking important conversations. Kate Dudding specializes in telling true stories about people who make a difference in the world. And in this next story from a collection called People Who Make a Difference, Kate tells the stories of two African-Americans, Jackie Robinson and Wendell Smith, whose collective efforts, one on the field and the other off the field, had a tremendous impact for good on the sport of baseball and for civil rights in general. Here's Kate Dudding with the story Being on the Outside, here on the Appleseed. Have you ever been on the outside and wanted to be on the inside, even though you knew that once you got on the inside, you were going to have to work very hard to prove that you belonged there, but still wanting to be on the inside. Wendell Smith spent his life pretty much filled with that same feeling, especially when he started asking questions in 1938. Wendell Smith was an African-American sports writer for the largest African-American newspaper at the time, the Pittsburgh Courier. Whenever a Major League Baseball team was visiting Pittsburgh, he would ask the players, the owners, and the managers questions. He started with an easy question. Have you ever seen any Negro players you thought could play Major League Baseball? And then he asked, Do you think black players ought to be allowed to compete with white players? Face to face, 75% of the people he asked agreed that the Major League teams should be integrated. But nothing changed. It was only white players in the major league teams. Wendell said, when I was asking those questions, I was not in the press box. I was not allowed in the press box. I had to ask my questions outside the stadium or at the hotels where the teams were staying. So he was literally on the outside. But he kept on asking his questions. 
to the point where other African-American sports writers joined in with him and asked those same questions. For five years, they asked those questions till it got to a point where the commissioner of baseball had to do something about it. So he held a hearing where five African-American sports writers, including Wendell Smith, got to present their case for 30 minutes to the owners of the Major League Baseball teams. After their presentation was over, they were ushered out of the room and the door was closed. Then the commissioner of baseball said, there will be no discussion. And that was the end of that. Now that sounds as if that was a complete waste of time, except later Wendell Smith said, I thought I saw a gleam in Branch Rickey's eye. Now Branch Rickey was the part owner and general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, a team that had never won the World Series. And he was an unusual combination of a very religious man, a Methodist, and highly pragmatic man who wanted to win the World Series as cheaply as possible. And he began to get the idea that maybe if he hired some black ball players, he might be able to accomplish that goal. That was 1943. Two years later, a white politician in Boston helped Wendell Smith's crusade. I guess that's what you would have to call it. You see, a lot of African Americans had been moving into the white politician's district, and he wanted to get on their good side. So he made a big fuss because neither of the major league teams in Boston, they had both the Red Sox and the Braves, neither of them had any black ball players. Well, the general manager of the Boston Red Sox said, no black player has ever asked for a tryout. When Wendell Smith read that, he got on the telephone and said, I know three black ball players who would love to try out for the Boston Red Sox. Sam Jethro, Marvin Williams, and Jackie Robinson. So the tryout was arranged. Wendell Smith joined those three ball players who were men just like himself, men who were college-educated, who had played on integrated teams, men who could put up with a certain amount of harassment. The tryout only lasted an hour. The general manager was just going through the motions and then told everybody to go away. Again, that seemed like a waste of time, except that Wendell Smith made a little detour on the way back to Pittsburgh. He detoured to Brooklyn, not really on the way, but he made an appointment to see Branch Rickey to tell him what had happened at the tryouts. Wendell Smith later said, when I mentioned Jackie Robinson, Branch Rickey's bushy eyebrows went way up and said, Jackie Robinson? I didn't know he played baseball. I knew he played football. He plays baseball, too. Hmm. You see, Jackie Robinson had become famous across the country when he played football for UCLA. He also played baseball, track, and tennis. He was there on a scholarship. Branch Rickey sent out a scout to watch Jackie Robinson play in the Negro League. 
and later that year invited Jackie Robinson to his office. They talked, and one of the things Branch Rickey said is, I'm looking for a player who will not fight back. And Jackie Robinson said, I can do that. So Branch Rickey hired Jackie for the Brooklyn Dodgers' top farm team, the Montreal Royals. And that's where Jackie played in the 1946 season. Branch Rickey wanted to see how Jackie would do in that environment. Well, he did quite well. He led the league in batting. He batted over 340. He scored over 100 runs. He stole 40 bases. And the team won their World Series. So in April 1947, Jackie Robinson was signed on to the Brooklyn Dodgers. He was finally on the inside. That first day when he walked into the clubhouse, two of his teammates shook his hand, several others nodded at him, and the rest ignored him. Perhaps they greeted all rookies that way. That first day, well, he only got on base one out of the four times he was at bat. He did score a run, but it wasn't the stellar play he had been doing up in Montreal. He was interviewed that night, and he said, I know I owe a duty to my race, but I can't be thinking about that when I'm at bat or on the field. It's just too much of a burden. I'll do my best. Well, it's hard to do your best when people are yelling nasty things at you, and people were doing that. The crowd, members of the other team, in fact, in Philadelphia, what was coming out of the Phillies' dugout was so vile that fans wrote to the commissioner of baseball saying, this is a family park. I don't bring my family here to hear that kind of stuff. So the commissioner of baseball had to tell the owner of the Phillies to keep the manager under control because it was said, some people said this happened, some said it didn't, but some say the manager had ordered his players to yell those racial slurs at Jackie. Jackie kept on trying to do his best. The statistics showed that Jackie was getting hit by pitches more than anyone else in the league, or in the American League, for that matter. But that stopped after May, after two months, apparently because the pitchers noticed that Jackie was not rattled by that. But Jackie was starting to rattle the pitchers. Once he got on base, he liked to take long leads, And that started distracting the pitchers. They had to keep their eye on him over their shoulder, as well as trying to figure out what they were going to pitch to the batter. Jackie enjoyed taking those long leads and rattling the pitchers. It was his way of fighting back. The African-American fans were coming to see him in droves, Prior to Jackie playing in the previous seasons, maybe the crowds coming to baseball stadiums were 5 to 10% African-American. But now they were up to more like 50%. As Wendell Smith wrote in the newspaper, 
Jackie's nimble. Jackie's quick. Jackie's making the turnstiles click. (laughs) No one knew what the crowds were going to do. This was the first time the races were really mixing in large numbers. The black newspapers cautioned, it is well to remember that we are on the spot as well as Jackie. We cannot afford to let him down. Black churches were telling their parishioners, do not drink alcohol or curse in the baseball stadiums. And what was it like being in the crowd? Mike Royko, who is now a newspaper columnist, was then a 14-year-old Chicago Cubs fan. And he was there the first day Jackie Robinson played in Chicago. He wrote, The crowd was orderly, almost unnaturally so. People weren't jostling each other. The whites were trying to act as if nothing was unusual. The blacks were well-dressed for coming to a baseball game and trying to look nonchalant. Everyone looked uncomfortable. But when Jackie came up to bat the first time, he got a standing ovation, long, sustained applause. But as soon as he stepped into the batter's box, it stopped as if a switch had been flicked. The pitch came, and he hit it. It was a high ball, a pop that went into the box seats, foul. But he got such a standing ovation on that. The black man standing next to me was obviously clapping so hard that his hands must have hurt. I remember thinking, how can a foul ball make people so happy? (laughs) In St. Louis, in the middle of the season... Some fans started calling out those nasty remarks again, and some of the African-American fans in the crowd stood up and started clapping to drown out the sound of those filthy words. And then lots of fans stood up, black and white, and were cheering and whistling and clapping and stamping to drown out the sound of the heckling that Jackie was getting. Jackie was continuing to make the pitchers nervous, And it was in St. Louis when he stole home plate for the first time. It was the winning run. Branch Rickey laughed. The Dodger fans were ecstatic. And Jackie had found his calling card. Stealing home plate remained his calling card for the rest of his baseball career. Even when Jackie made a mistake, he could turn it around. Once he took too long a lead off of second base when there was a pop-up that went just beyond the infield and he couldn't get back to second, he was going to be tagged out. But he kept four of his opponents busy running back and forth between second and third, stopping with, with a large flourish of arms and then turning around, making a real dramatic play of all this. And no one noticed that the Dodger that had been on first had made it to second. It was only then that Jackie allowed himself to be tagged out. Another time when Jackie took a long lead off a third and got stuck like that, for 40 seconds he kept five opponents busy, throwing the ball back and forth, trying to get close to him, until there was a wild throw that got past the third baseman, and Jackie stole home again. 
Jackie, by this time, knew he was playing Major League Baseball and that everybody who saw him knew he was playing Major League Baseball. But he still didn't know what his teammates thought about him. It was in September when Jackie, playing first base... By the way, he played first base that whole season. He had never played first base before, so he was learning to play that position while he was doing everything else. So he was on first base, and there was a pop-up that was going right over the stairs into the Dodger dugout. So even though Jackie knew, he could jump and catch it, but then he was going to fall on the stairs and probably get hurt. He still went after the ball. He jumped up, he caught it, and then to his great amazement, one of his own pitchers, Ralph Branca, tackled him, and the two of them landed on the grass. Jackie said later, I think I was the most surprised person in the stadium that day. I never expected Branca to save me like that, and it certainly wouldn't have happened back in April. Well, that season ended very well for Jackie. He was named Rookie of the Year by the Sporting News, a publication that definitely had not been behind him when he first joined the Dodgers. The Dodgers won the National League pennant that year and went to the World Series to play against, can you guess? The Yankees, exactly. It was a Subway Series, and it started in Yankee Stadium. The Yankees won the first two games. It didn't look good for the Dodgers. But the series moved to Ebbets Field, and they won the third game and the fourth game. They tied up the series which then went back to Yankee Stadium, and the Yankees won the next game, and the Dodgers won the next one. They tied it up three to three. And in the seventh game, unfortunately, I have to report to you, and I hope my father forgives me, for he was a staunch Yankee fan. Unfortunately, I have to report to you that the Yankees won that seventh game. The Dodgers had to meet the Yankees in the World Series five times before they won. But that was when Jackie was still playing for them. So there is some good news eventually for the Dodgers. Now, what happened in the clubhouse that afternoon was very different than what had happened in the clubhouse on Jackie's first day. On that last day of the season of 1947, every one of his teammates came up to him and shook his hand, saying things like, you had a great season, Jackie, or we never would have gotten this far without you. Because you see, not only did Jackie bat well, but the guys who followed him batted better than they had the previous season because Jackie was ruffling the pitcher's feathers all the time, and they threw a lot of good balls that his teammates could hit. Now, Wendell Smith, he had traveled with the Dodgers during the whole season, covering their games for the Pittsburgh Courier. At the end of the regular season, he was hired by a white newspaper in Chicago. He said, I would love to work for you, but I feel I want to cover the World Series for the Pittsburgh Courier, too. I've taken my readers all the way through the year, and I want to finish the year with them, and 
So the white newspaper agreed that he could cover the World Series for both the papers. Wendell Smith got to report the World Series from the press box because he was now working for a white paper. To let his Pittsburgh Courier readers know that, he changed his dateline that first day in the Yankee Stadium clubhouse. Usually the dateline says just the city, New York. That day, the dateline said, press box, Yankee Stadium, New York. Wendell Smith worked for white newspapers in Chicago and then for a TV station as a sportscaster for the rest of his career. You know, I wondered, I wondered why he had worked so hard to get someone else into Major League Baseball. And in the book, Opening Day, by Jonathan Igg, I found out the answer. Five years before Wendell Smith had started asking those questions, in 1933, Wendell Smith was a 19-year-old pitcher playing for an integrated team in Detroit, an American Legion team. There was a championship game where he pitched a no-hitter. And a scout from the Chicago White Sox was there and saw him do it. After the game was over, Wendell Smith was talking with his catcher, a white player. When the scout came up to them and said, I want to offer you a contract with the Chicago White Sox, the scout was talking to the catcher. The scout turned to Wendell Smith and said, Kid, I wish I could offer you a contract, but I can't. So Wendell Smith never got on the inside as a ball player. Of course, in baseball, the ultimate proof of belonging is being elected to the baseball hall of fame, exactly, in Cooperstown. Jackie Robinson was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame the first time he was eligible. In 1994, 22 years after Wendell Smith died, he too was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame as a sports writer, the first African-American sports writer so honored. Wendell Smith and Jackie Robinson were both men who started on the outside, worked hard to get on the inside, and proved conclusively that they belonged there. That was Being on the Outside, a true story from Kate Dudding about a couple of people who made a difference in the world. It's our hope that while you listen to that story, you not only felt an appreciation for Jackie Robinson and Wendell Smith, but that you also thought of someone that made a difference in your life. And if you did, and you're willing to share, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at theappleseed.com 
at byu.edu. We're going to take uh, we're going to wrap things up now with a little radio drama from our producer Jeff Simpson. While we're on the topic of baseball, this piece is also based on a true story, and it's about another baseball player who overcame enormous obstacles to make his mark in baseball history and to make his mark in the lives of people with similar obstacles. Here's Jeff Simpson, as well as a cast of young actors, to share with you the story of Major League pitcher Jim Abbott. It's 3 o'clock in Flint, Michigan, and the students of Anderson Elementary School are about to hear a most welcome sound, the sound of freedom. With school out, the boys of Anderson Elementary can finally engage in their favorite after-school pastime, America's pastime, baseball. All right, Bobby, let's do a coin toss to see who gets first pick. Heads or tails? Call it in the air. Uh, heads. Ooh, sorry. Tails never fails. Yeah, whatever. Just pick already. Okay, let's see. Uh, Anderson, you're with me. Who do you want? I'll take Jones. Jonesy boy, you're with me. All right. Andrew. The selection ritual looks about the same at every park. Pick the best, biggest, Elijah, or most popular players first. Um, I'll take you, Trevor. Adam. Then move on to the decent players. Matthew, come on. Mike. <laughs> take it easy there, Mike. Until there's the odd man out. The one no captain is eager to take. Okay, let's play. What about Abbott? Oh, uh, you get Abbott. I don't want Abbott. He's only got one hand. So what? It, it's your turn, and he's the only one left. What's the big deal? Well, if you don't mind so much, why don't you take Captain Hook? Because it's your turn to pick. That ain't fair. You cheated on the coin toss. I did not cheat on the coin toss. Yes, you did. You I cheated. Cannot. You waited the coin. I can't so wait you a get coin. Heads. I know how to wait a coin, and furthermore, I don't think there's a shop in this town that could wait a coin. For young Jim Abbott, who was born without a right hand, this is an all-too-familiar scene. One that inevitably leads to tears. Jim's parents are there to dry those tears, but they also encourage him to face his problems head on. Son, calm down. There, there. Now sit down and tell us what happened. The kids at school wouldn't let me play with them again. It's not fair. Son, come on, we talked about this. Life can be unfair sometimes. You want to talk about unfair. When I was your age, I lost my dad and my brother in the same year. I know, Dad. It's just that... Uh, Look, uh, let me put it to you in baseball terms. You see, son, in life, we all have some tough pitches hurled at us that are hard to hit. For one guy, it might be a slider. For another... It's a change-up, and for you, it's a curveball. You see what I'm trying to get at, son? Not really. I, I think what your father is trying to say, Jimmy, is that we all have challenges, and they're all a little different. Yours is not having a right hand. What you need to ask yourself, son, is what am I going to do about it? You see, son... 
When you're down in the count and you're sick and tired of feeling like you know you'd... what I'm sick and tired of? I'm sick and tired of being left out. Sick and tired of the name calling, and I'm sick and tired of this this hook. Jimmy, where are you going, honey? We need to talk about this. A baseball metaphor, really? I thought it would ring true for him. Well, should we go after him? No, no, let him go. He'll be fine. He he just needs a little more time is all. Oh, I'll show him. I'll, I'll play by myself. I'll get so good that they can't ignore me. Jim would spend many a night throwing a ball against the side of the Abbott family duplex. <sighs> it was here he would begin to perfect what would be known as the Abbott switch. Rest the glove on the right arm. Throw the ball with the left arm, then slip the left hand into the glove while the ball bounces off the wall and travels back. Field the ball, use the right arm to free the glove from the left hand, grab the ball out of the glove, and then repeat over and over, each time a little faster than the last. This skill will prove critical if he is ever going to become a great pitcher, and he hopes to be. He idolizes the legendary pitcher Nolan Ryan. And often, during these practice sessions, he fantasizes about pitching a no-hitter, just like the future Hall of Famer. He can see it in his mind. The music, the crowds, and the feeling of the ball in his hands. All right, folks. It all comes down to this. Bottom of the ninth. Two outs, Nolan Ryan. No, Jim Abbott is just one strike away from pitching a historic no-hitter. Johnny Bench gives Abbott the sign. Abbott nods, goes into the wind-up, and the pitch. Strike three! He's done it! He's done it! Jim Abbott is the first one-handed pitcher to throw a no-hitter! And the crowd goes wild! Ha! Ah, ah. Ha! Woohoo! He's done it! I'm the best pitcher in the world! It's September 4th, 1993, and the cheers from Jim Abbott's practice sessions are now real. Jim is one out away from pitching a real no-hitter for the New York Yankees. Matt Noakes gives Abbott the sign. Abbott nods, goes into the windup, and the pitch. Grounded out to shortstop Randy Velarde, who throws over to Don Mattingly on first base. Jim Abbott is no longer that little boy picked last to play. Jim Abbott is no longer a one-handed pitcher. As he soaks in the sounds of the crowd, Jim Abbott realizes he is finally being accepted for what he is. A pitcher. A pitcher who has just thrown a no-hitter. Jim Abbott said of the experience, I wish I had an incredible vocabulary to describe the elation I felt, the disbelief, to see the fans jumping up and down, the noise, to be in the center of all that with your teammates, 
and to share the moment with Matt Noakes, my catcher. Every sense in your body is at full speed. You're just taking it all in. The story of Jim Abbott, produced by our producer, Jeff Simpson. It's been a great pleasure to be with you today on The Appleseed and to bring you tales from Ed Stivender, who brought that version of Hansel and Gretel to the beginning of the hour. And also, of course, Kate Dudding, who told us about Jackie Robinson and Wendell Smith. And uh, it's fun to stick with baseball through that Jim Abbott story, too. Our audio engineer is Carly Robison. I'm Sam Payne. Such a pleasure to be with you. You know, you can tune in to the podcast. Google the Appleseed Podcast and subscribe for something new just about every day on the show. Not only these hour-long episodes filled with stories, but also Appleseed extras that you can only find in the podcast and that are usually just a few minutes long in case you only have a few minutes and you want to fill them with a great story. I'm Sam Payne. Can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time. Hey, it's me, Sam. Just one more quick thing before you go. We love having you with us on The Appleseed, and there's a lot more at BYU Radio that you'll enjoy. Top of Mind, The Lisa Show, Constant Wonder, all available as podcasts and at byuradio.org. Give a listen, yeah?